Welcome to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. And I'm Caitlin, and I'm PI's Campaigns Officer. Hi! Today, we're talking about something that's very close and near and dear to Caitlin and the work that she does at PI, and it is education technology. Yes, my arguably my pet project. My one true love is a weird way of saying it, <laughs> but the thing that I probably bring up most, like out of nowhere in conversations, we're having a perfectly normal conversation, like, have you thought about that in terms of ed tech? So, you know, we both look bad. You know, you look bad because you're like an ed tech geek that just raises whatever you're interested in in every conversation, including podcasts. And I look bad as an employer because you have your your little idea pet project and all of a sudden it becomes a big area at PI that we're doing serious work on. Yeah. Well, actually, I come out looking better than you do. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think your family and friends are less annoyed by it, I would say. <laughs> So education technology is something I've gotten really interested in over the years of working at PI for lots of different reasons, some to do with the actual technology, some to do with the pandemic and the way that it's kind of proliferated, and some to do with the fairly, I think, unique population that EdTech is designed to serve. So all the EdTechs that we're going to be talking about today can be used in lots of different educational settings from prisons to universities. We're largely looking or talking about educational settings designed for under 18s. So in the UK, that's primary schools and high schools. And that is because they're a really kind of interesting example because of the age ranges and development kind of issues that they raise. They're also very commonly the place people are thinking of when they talk about or legislate for ed tech. Yeah. And as a parent with a kid in school, in the younger years of school, I have to live with ed tech, I think at two different levels. There's the type of ed tech that is mostly, if I could put it as administrative, which Mm -hmm. is the communication from the school about things going on. And I think the teachers use that to communicate with the students to some degree. And also it's sometimes just a more advanced form of a register, but combined with social networking interfaces, which are really strange. And then there's this ed tech as seen on TV in science fiction films, which is like, you know, there's a robot teaching you in class and the blackboard has been replaced with a whiteboard and the whiteboard is entirely virtual and, and stuff like that. Is, is that the distribution of ed tech as you've come to find it? Yes. So you've got the two main categories and one breaks down into more categories, but broadly you've got the admin ed tech and you've got quote unquote in class ed tech. And admin ed tech is broadly kind of technology that's used to administer the life of the school. So that might be, you know, in some of the more dramatic examples we've seen, it can be facial recognition used to take a register. It can be kind of artificial intelligence used in conjunction with a child's behavioral record to set class seating maps. We've seen that, but it can also be, you know, the database on which attendance information is stored. It can be the way that schools communicate with parents. And that means kind of a lot of technologies fall under ed tech or are used for educational purposes. And some of them are really kind of standard. And again, they fit into the schema, but they're not really what we mean when we say ed tech, like email. And some are very specific to 
edtech, education technology. And like, I think PI's definition is fairly broad because we do consider all of those different kinds of education technologies as edtech. And more and more are being built specifically to serve schools, like, you know, facial recognition in classrooms, like all sorts of other things. Yeah. And then you've got the in, kind of quote unquote in class edtech, which are the more traditional kinds of edtech technologies, which I would break down into two further categories because I love lists in a way that isn't always healthy. But you've got content and then you've got content delivery. So content is like your Khan Academies, it's your Duolingos, it's something that it comes with the content built in, if that makes sense. Yeah. It comes with the lessons. Whereas a content delivery ed tech might be like your Zooms, your Google Classrooms, the other things which are the framework that kind of schools use to deliver their lessons, if that makes sense. So, yes. you know, Google Classroom, the teacher is still setting the content, but it is the way in which it is delivered within the classroom. And again, like Zoom is under our definition and in that sense, an ed tech even though it's obviously used all over the world all the time for lots and lots of purposes beyond edtech in the same way that, you know, PI's done lots of work on workplace surveillance on Office 365, which again is very common in schools. And I think there is something very specific about the classroom, about the school, that means that we think it's important to treat edtech, even as it crosses over with other technologies, as a fairly specific unit of thing. So, like, if you're a child, you have to go to school in most countries. And there are punishments if you don't go to school. And some of those punishments are aimed at your family. So parents can go to prison, get heavy fines. In Brazil, for a while, the Bolsa Familia, which is was a welfare payment, was predicated on your child have a certain level of attendance at school. And schools aren't easy to move between. It's not normally like you, there are loads of options your child can go to, you know, five different schools, they have different attitudes to privacy, you can pick the one that suits you best, you know, and your family's values. It's not normally like that. You don't have a huge list of options. Your child has to go to school. And then as well, your child may be very young, they could be as young as like six or younger, or they could be, you know, heading towards 18. Our son was four and a half when he started. Yeah, a tiny little baby. Mm. And, you know, a four and a half year old and an 18 year old have very different capacities to understand what is happening to them and the way that they're being treated. And so what I think is particularly interesting about schools and to an extent, it's true of universities and to an extent it's true of other forms of education, but it's particularly interesting about schools because of this kind of state enforced attendance normally. It means it's all incredibly complicated when it comes to consent. So, you know, there's this concept called Gillick competence in the UK, in medicine, and the concept of Gillick competence is essentially the idea that a child that's able to understand should be able to input in and then ultimately make their own medical decisions and they should be included in the process as much as humanly possible as far as i know as far as i've seen the concept doesn't really exist in schools in education there isn't really a point for kids living at home where they're starting to be asked to make their own decisions when it comes to their education and that's like school trips but it's also does your school use google classrooms does your school you know, want your biometric information for facial recognition, to take your fingerprint, to do all these other things. That's a form that goes home to parents. And that's, you know, it's not an inherently bad system, but it kind of excludes the agency of the child quite a bit. And that's fair, like that four and a half year old 
is being asked these things that they just don't have the capacity to understand. They don't have the capacity to make decisions on. But the 18-year-old, it becomes a bit harder to kind of make that argument, make that justification. Now, even if they did, even if you were asking the 18-year-old, you know, do you want your face print to be taken for facial recognition? That's also complicated because even if you were asking that question, then it's really complicated to be different at school. <laughs> like yes. it's difficult, right? If you're the only person in your class saying, actually, I'm not comfortable with that. And therefore you need to participate in a process differently, whether that's having the register taken differently for you, although it's hard to opt out of facial recognition when it's in the room with you, whether it's not taking books out by using your fingerprint, which is a thing that happens in quite a lot of UK schools, all of those would apply differently to you. And that is quite difficult. And in fact, we've heard of cases when even when the parent has denied consent, because they're like the only child in the class, the school has taken the fingerprint anyway, without realizing, and then they have to go back and try and get it deleted. And it becomes extremely complicated because the kid didn't want to say, actually, my mom says I can't do that. Because yeah, yeah. being different <laughs> on the first day of school is incredibly difficult. Exactly. So you don't have a lot of options. You don't have a lot of agency. You don't have a lot of choice. These things happen to you in lots of cases when you're a kid in school. And that's not always a bad thing. I'm not saying that it's always a bad thing, but it's something that I think it's the main reason I'm interested in ed tech because, yeah. you know, I'm getting older and older. I'm no longer like a kid in school, but it doesn't feel like that long ago. And we talk a lot about data protection issues. We talk a lot about ad tech and all these places that your data goes and the ways that it's really complicated to understand and the potential impacts that it has on people. And then you get these kids in these schools and like, they don't have options. You know, you don't always have options with ad tech. You don't always have options with a lot of things, but I think it's somewhere that we can really do a lot to help give people more agency, more choice, more options and more ways of pushing back. And schools, we can give them kind of more knowledge, more understanding and more ways of evaluating the technology they're choosing to use. Excellent. Because that's the other thing. I don't think it's all bad. <laughs> you know, we have a lot of partners all around the world and we. And I was talking to some of our partners in Nigeria and they also have, they've got data protection concerns, they've got concerns with edtech, but they're also saying we don't have internet in classrooms in a lot of our schools. We don't have the investment in education that means we can afford edtech. And sometimes edtech is better than nothing. I think all those arguments are good arguments. So what we need is an infrastructure and an ecosystem for edtech that supports edtech that works, that works well, and it respects the agency and the rights of the people that use it. And that is a problem with edtech. There aren't a lot of places you can go to find out if edtech is good, if it's good edtech, if it's efficient. And that makes kind of discussing the trade-offs between capturing data in data intensive systems versus the educational value, very, very difficult because it's hard to say what the educational value is. Yeah. You know, I think in a lot of ways, there are kind of ways of thinking around it. Like we've been talking a lot internally about consent. How do we discuss with schools, like how to deal with that? And one of the things that we've been thinking about is if it's something you would need to ask consent for, if it's something that, you know, is opt-outable, is it necessary? Because if it's not necessary for education, why have it? Like there are less data intensive ways of doing things. I had to subject my son to homeschooling during the various lockdowns where the poor guy had to put up with me. Like I, I was dealing with Zoom on so many different screens, whether it's for his education or for my own. And just from an account basis, 
it's so complicated. So like we need to have a Google account in order to use Google Classroom, but is it my account? Is it his account? And then even going to the most basic, as you were saying with the admin tech, email is complicated ed tech for schools because as they're trying to communicate with parents, it's not like they're a shop communicating with its clients. Parents of a kid where there may be one parent, maybe two parent, maybe a guardian, and who they're communicating with, it, it they manage to screw it up every time because it's hard. And so the fact that, you know, there are companies who can say, buy this off the shelf and it'll work. I hope they get better at solving this identity issue at the very beginning of it, which is, you know, which account am I supposed to use? But I, I figure like Google is a small company. They'll, they'll figure it out at some point, right? Google is a really interesting example and it's kind of a follow-up to a story which has been ongoing at the moment, actually just came out pretty recently, which is, I, I don't know if you know, but Google is pretty heavily used in Denmark for schools. Um, Google Classroom is a pretty big deal as it is in a lot of places. Only in Denmark, it's kind of in the process for being banned. There's one specific town in which this kind of process has started. And if it did get banned, it's kind of in review. If it does violate data protection law, then it's going to roll out across Denmark, most likely. So this is Caitlin from the future. Uh, we realised listening back in the edit, it's not super clear what's going on in Denmark around Google. So we've added a ton of links in the description if you want to find out more. Essentially, the Google ban, in it's actually in one city called Helsingor, is currently on a two-month hiatus so that Helsingor and Google can negotiate, work out the issues that the DPA raised. It's one we're going to be keeping an eye on to see if it's a ban that spreads across Denmark, but also if anyone else has similar issues with Google Classrooms, but also Google Chromebooks in their schools. So yeah, check out the description for more information. So Google's a really interesting one because they have so many services and they're so big and the some of the problems do come down to an account issue. So Google Classroom, when you log in, you know, with the account that's been set up by the school, is in theory pretty heavily siloed. So all the information that your child inputs as part of their Google Classroom, kind of the services they use as part of Google Classroom, in theory, shouldn't be used to sell target adverts. It, sh it should never be sold onto third parties. It's supposed to say specifically in this silo. But the problem is that Google account doesn't prevent that child, or it didn't, um, from moving between apps, and not all of them are Google Classroom apps. So if the child goes off and uses YouTube, which you know <laughs> kids do, yeah. then what can happen is that information does get kind of used in targeted advertising. Targeted advertising and informing uh, the engine for what to display next. And actually, it's easier to use YouTube when you're logged in than not, because otherwise you're getting nagged all the goddamn time for cookies and consent. Yeah. And like the other thing is Google is a fairly closed box. You know, if your child is using Google Classroom, it is fairly difficult, not only for you, but also for the school to say for definite what the data is being used for. And in Denmark, in the kind of initial case that kind of has caused this bigger furore, one of the things that the Data Protection Authority picked out was that the school did not do a proper data protection impact assessment as they are supposed to do under the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is the European kind of data protection law. And it is really, really hard to do. It's really hard to do for data protection professionals. It's really hard to do for schools who aren't necessarily set up to deal with a lot of data protection issues, especially when something like Google Classrooms, it's Google, it's a big company, maybe you trust them, maybe all the other schools that you kind of work with are using it. And so, it, you know, people sign these contracts and they, they don't 
they have a duty of care, they have responsibility, they're supposed to look in a lot of detail about exactly where the data goes, but it goes inside Google and then it becomes very difficult to say. So Google does a particularly interesting example, partly through ubiquity, partly through Google's Googliness and it's kind of everywhere as, as a separate kind of ubiquity beyond even Google Classroom, which is very popular. So that's a particularly interesting example, I think. But all issues of data protection in schools are complicated and they're more complicated, I would argue, than in most other places. As a parent, I struggle with this in the same way that you're talking about an 18-year-old would struggle. I don't want my kid to not have access to the best and greatest. And am I going to be the stick in the mud, the lone parent in the whole school that says, no, thou shall not use this tech? Or you'll take my kid out of class when you use this tech. No parent really wants that, but every parent wants to have a say over how how their kid is treated in school and how the school conducts itself. And then as a, I don't mean to put it in terms of a taxpayer, but as you were talking about, you know, there are some parts of the world where the schools don't have broadband or internet connections and the deployment of ed tech could be an enabler of that, I imagine. But what I also know about how money is spent is that sometimes we get terribly excited about buying an item that is a one-off cost. And in five years time, nobody who bought it uh, is still there and the, the cost has been absorbed, but it's not actually used anymore. And I would want to make sure that we're actually spending money in a useful way that actually builds something useful and it's not just somebody's tidy idea. No, this is really, it's a vital point, which is to say that this is something that we're looking into and I wanna find more research about because from my kind of instinctive idea, I would assume that sometimes money gets spent on ed tech because it's easy and it's shiny when what is needed is investment in schools and in teachers. So when it comes to evaluating the efficacy, the efficiency, the goodness, the value of ed tech, like I always want to know, is it good in comparison to nothing? Is it good in comparison or in conjunction with something? You know, what is the basis on which it is good? And what is the cost per unit of goodness, I guess, versus hiring a teacher and paying a teacher and, you know, decreasing class sizes, for example, or improving, you know, facilities, giving free school meals. Like those things need to be in the conversation, the same conversation as EdTech when we talk about the value of EdTech for education, because without talking about those things and the cost of those things and comparing them. Like if you're comparing ed tech for ed tech, which one should we get? The premise is you need one and you don't yeah. necessarily because the cheapest option as compared to a facial recognition system for a school to take attendance is probably a teacher with a list taking attendance. <laughs> Knowing the names of the kids in the class. Knowing the names of the kids in the class, which is no bad thing. It takes a little bit of time, which is the premise of you know some of this ed tech. It's like, we will take some of the admin tasks off of teachers, which has been a premise of ed tech for as long as there has been ed tech. Like some of the earliest kind of ed tech was to do with removing the burden of marking from teachers. And so it was based on typewriters and it was like, it would tell someone automatically as they went through, is this right? Is this wrong? And it was designed, yeah, to remove the burden of marking from teachers, but also to give instant feedback to a child. And a lot of it hasn't moved on that far, to be honest with you. Like a lot of it is doing the same thing, but it's online. So 
Yeah. With that, there's an element of uniformity that comes with the introduction of this, but the flexibility too. So just going with your point that it's always been around, you know, as a Harry Potter fan, I think that was probably when I was first introduced to the concept of uh, points for your your house. When my son went to his first school here, they they did a digital version of that where <laughs> I can't remember, it was some ninja something. I can't remember the name of the app, but he was given points. His classmates were given points. Their teams were given points based on behavior. And I, I hated the idea of a four and a half year old getting points for good behavior, but I wanted to give the benefit of the doubt to the teacher that they, they weren't just gamifying behavior. <laughs> And uh, by the end of the year, it became very clear they were just gamifying behavior. And my son ended up going to another school a couple of years later where I was very annoyed that the exact same system was about to be deployed, but it was deployed completely differently. So there's still room for this deployment, but I still want the teachers or the school officials who say, we're going to buy a service that gamifies behavior. I want them to justify this. And I want them to say, how is this going to be used? And is this actually what's needed? Yes, 100%. It's kind of a low-tech nowadays version of EdTech. My school has a lot of smart whiteboards. Honestly, I'm not sure what it was for, but they broke all the time. And having a projector to do PowerPoints and having a normal whiteboard probably would have saved everyone a lot of time and effort. And, you know, teachers want to engage kids. That's a fact. That's true. Like, that's kind of a lot of why they're teachers. And I think experimenting with new technologies is fine as long as those technologies have exist to certain standards and, you know, otherwise there's no way of getting evidence to find out if they work or not. But at the same time, yeah, you've got to be able to justify it. And that's a big part of, you know, some of the problems. So I've worked a lot at PI on public-private partnerships. And we've got these all these safeguards we've published on public-private partnerships. And we've done a handbook for how you can investigate public-private partnerships. And a lot of the problems with EdTech come out of the problems with public-private partnerships that we see all the time. So there are issues around transparency, issues around procurement, issues around accountability, understanding of data protection, oversight. So they're all kind of... I don't want to say standard problems because that makes them sound small and they're not small problems, but they're all common problems that really need to be taken seriously when it's something as serious as kids' data. And like the thing to bear in mind is it's not just, oh, whatever, it's my kids' test score from like it's nothing. It's not true because if you have, you know, that four and a half year old's behavioral data and it kind of leaks out into the wider world and passed on to third parties and passed on to ad brokers, data brokers, it enters into this much bigger ecosystem and it can follow them for their like their entire life. We don't want to find ourselves in a situation where kids who are kids now who have no agency, who have no say, their data, you know, is ultimately used to deny them an insurance product in 20 years' time or a housing, you know, a lease or anything else. And behavioral data, test scores, all these things, they're not small pieces of information, particularly when taken with other things. Mm 
particularly when taken with the other contextual information that you give to a school, like where you live, your birthday, your full name, your parents' full names. You know, there's a lot, a lot of information that's there and a lot of which is important information that can really shape a life and defines a life in a lot of ways when you're young. For a lot of kids, school is like 90% of the things that you're doing and the things that you're up to, or they come from school, they're school clubs, you know? And that's not true everywhere, but school's an important kind of centerpiece of a lot of kids' lives. A lot of data in isolation seems small, but it, the, the, the amount of data that a school has is not small. And even in small ways, you know, our partners, the DRF in Pakistan, last year they did a report on kind of edtech use in Pakistan and the way that it has ticked up because of COVID. And they found that data from schools, particularly around women and girls, can get used to then harass them outside of school and during school. It's why things like, you know, Zoom bombing isn't fun if you're an adult, but it's extremely confusing and scary and like it can be really unpleasant if you're very small and you don't understand what's going on. So like Zoom bombing was kind of a joke, really. It was kind of funny. But the DRF found that in Pakistan, school lessons were getting interrupted and some of which would be sexual imagery, which is not great. And that comes from a lack of caution in, in implementing technology. It's not necessarily a Zoom problem, though, you know, there were issues at the time. It comes from, have you checked the security settings? Have you thought it through? Because everything is heightened when it's children (laughs) it's stressful all the time and that information is important all the time needs to be safeguarded even as those children are you know 30 year old adults but the amount of technology that kind of gets thrown at schools because people want shortcuts to good education or they want you know to preserve teachers times they want to do x y and z without that due process without the thinking through the procurement without kind of taking all of the important steps it's really frustrating. And sometimes it's not the school's fault. You know, teachers will sometimes recommend apps that they found useful that aren't being carefully procured by the school. Like there was one, I was dumping quite a lot of these apps that I was finding into Exodus Privacy, which is a way of doing a static analysis of apps. And I found one called Quizlet that I definitely got recommended to use, I think, in university. I've used it. Mm -hmm. I was learning Greek and my tutor was using it. Yeah, like it makes sense. You can see why people recommend it. It's like a little app that kind of does flashcards, basically. Yeah. And it had like 10 trackers and 13 permissions uh, and 10 million plus downloads. And I didn't question it because my Greek teeth, like, yeah. yeah. And, and so if you're younger and your teacher says this is a really useful app, and, you know, a lot of them are good or useful and still have loads of trackers and a lot of them are pants and still have loads of trackers or they have loads of permissions you go through permissions and they seem sensible and then you don't see the trackers and so i guess one of the things that you can do at home is there's this website called exodus privacy i'll put a link in the description it doesn't it's not going to be the most detailed kind of review in the world but basically it looks through an app and sees if it can recognize any of the code signatures of trackers that it knows. So it's not perfect and it's static. It's looking through the code base. It's not looking through as you use the app to see where data is going. If you're more technical and and you've got some time on your hands, we do have something called the data intercept environment. Again, I'll put a link in the description where you can go into more detail and you can see where an app is sending things when. But Exodus is really useful to just give you kind of a quick rundown that's like, okay, it has this many trackers. Like Google Play and other stores will tell you what permissions things have quite a lot of the time. And Exodus does that as well. And it will give you little 
exclamation points if it's permission that uh, Google think is dangerous and flags as dangerous kind of because it's particularly important permission. But yeah, so there is some due diligence you can do on apps being recommended to you or, or, or to your kids. But it, it's kind of unreasonable, I think, to expect children to do that. And it's kind of unreasonable to expect parents to do that. I think that's due diligence that really should be being done by schools. And again, they, there are access issues. So if your teacher recommends Quizlet, they're assuming you have a phone or yeah. a tablet or a device. Yeah. You know, if your school introduces uh, remote proctoring, digital proctoring, they're assuming that you've got a quiet space. You can sit on your own in front of a computer where you won't be interrupted. Because if you get interrupted or there's lots of people moving around in the background, lots of noise, there's a chance that the proctoring system that your school is using, which is designed to check kind of the exam conditions of the area that you're in, will think it's suspicious. And you should also remember not to be black because the proctoring software might not recognize that you're there at all. You should remember not to be disabled because if you're moving around too much, if you have other issues, the proctoring software might also think you're suspicious. You should remember not to have human bodily functions because if you leave to go to the toilet, then the proctoring software might flag you as suspicious. I think it was in the UK, there was a big legal exam that was like hours and hours long, it was about three hours long. And students were peeing in buckets, they were peeing in bottles because they didn't want to leave. You needed to be staring at their computer screen the entire time. Those really took off in the pandemic. In the same way that workplace surveillance took off, remote proctoring took off. The kind of, we don't trust that you're not going to cheat if we leave you at home alone. So we're going to buy a complicated software that uses exactly. facial recognition and artificial yeah. intelligence to tell if you're suspicious. Yeah, have tech will travel. Exactly. And what it does 90% of the time is it doesn't say if you're suspicious in kind of a legal way or a reasonable way, it will say on the basis of our assumptions of what normal should look like during a test, do you fit those assumptions? And that's another huge kind of problem in the field of ed tech. There are lots of different people trying to introduce artificial intelligence and there are some applications that sound great, but a lot of it comes back to, well, what do we think normal should look like? And if you're a teacher and you, you know, you're meeting kids and you're coming to understand them as people then you get used to what normal for each individual looks like but systems have a much harder time doing that and not all teachers get it right like a lot of people have had bad teachers <laughs> you know or racist teachers or ableist teachers who won't let them go to the toilet enough like imagine if that is instead your fingerprint yeah. because that's something else we've seen at school at, i can't remember where i think in america introduced fingerprints to let you into the toilet because every time you get a small cut on your finger and you're trying to go to the toilet to use the sink, you should not be allowed access. Or every time, you know, if you burn yourself, you should not be allowed access to the toilet. You know, kids are weird. It's difficult to get kids to do what you want them to do to begin with. So assuming that kids are going to do things in the way that is normal and therefore be able to use all these systems or use them the way that you expect them to, it's just, it's not going to happen. No, no. And again, the uniformity kicks in. So I was mm -hmm. having drinks with one of my best friends who's a teacher and he was getting angry because he's heard that they're starting to deploy for younger kids that they're not allowed to go to the toilet during class. And just they, they, he, he could at least question it. The parents could potentially question it. But the moment it's deployed as a tech, all of a sudden you have a scalable technology that is dictating what is or isn't possible. Whereas before it would have been hard to enforce. A teacher could have used judgment and all of those things, but no, we want to lock these things down. And we, 
really want to accidentally record which kids have medical issues, which kids have IBS, which kids have like urge incontinence, you know, and I really want to add friction into the system of child goes toilet. And like, I think there's a tendency to wanting to make perfect systems. We don't want kids to be bullied in bathrooms. That's a completely reasonable statement. We don't want kids to get bullied in bathrooms. We cannot surveil bathrooms all the time. Bathrooms are a place that gets shut off. They're private for good reason. But it's not reasonable and it's not fair to say, well, you no longer get a private area to go to the toilet because we're so scared of you getting bullied. Yeah, but that's a different form of having your rights taken away. It's a different form of lack of respect and it's a different form of a lack of dignity. And some people go way too far. Like there was a company that tried to produce taser drones for American schools. That was their plan. They were going to do this. They got shut down by both their board and their ethics board, the entire ethics board. But like, if you do this, we're resigning and also (laughs) screw you. This is insane. But again, you're trying to solve broader political problems that, you know, in America, it comes down to school shooters are really scary. But the broader political problems around access to guns are extremely difficult. So to solve that issue, we're going to lock down schools and try and make them fortresses. But that is its own form of damage. I don't know how I would have survived in that kind of environment, just for the most banal reasons. Like, it's not just because I needed to go to the loot. I would actually arrange with friends who were in a different class that at a certain time, we'd all go, ask the teachers to go to the loot and we'd meet up and just hang out and have a good laugh and then go back. You know, it's the the ability to, to muck around. It's that kind of thing that a lot of schools kind of want to crack down on. And I'm, I'm being a bit unfair, like not all schools do, but kids breaking rules in small ways and creating their own small pockets of freedom are not bad things. Yes. Like they're not controllable and they're not predictable. And I think that scares a lot of people, particularly in fraught situations. But it comes down to the most basic things. Like a lot of schools have programs for giving kids digital devices. That is a good thing particularly in the world that we're building, which is so reliant on the digital, saying not everyone has access to a digital device, we will hand them out. That seems to be a good thing. There are lots of broader questions in that. We've got you know, partners in Argentina who are looking into the operating systems that come with it. You know, There are a lot of broader questions that you need to think about and consider, but it doesn't feel to me like a bad thing. But you cannot expect a child that you're giving a laptop to to only use it for school things. It's just not going to happen, which means if you insist on recording everything that they do on that laptop, you're going to find things that A, you shouldn't be recording and B, and none of your business. And that could be as simple as like their Neopets account. Neopets isn't really a thing anymore. Actually, it's gotten to be a much weirder thing. Neopets is a terrible example. They've gotten into, they've gotten into crypto. It's a whole thing. Oh, but God. like, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. NFTs, they got into NFTs. This is what happens when you let kids have too much freedom. (laughs) They start getting into NFTs. This is where we come a bit to what I have marked as the wild generalization section, which is, I think, broadly, the impetus between edtech in different countries is different. So this is more true pre-pandemic, you know, during and to some extent, those technologies have stuck around. So to some extent, post, it's been a lot more to do with access. So it's been a lot more to do with kids are at home. What do we do? They need education. Technology is going to be the way to reach them, which has created its own access concerns and its own disparity concerns. But you know, before the pandemic, at least that I've seen a lot of ed tech in the UK has been driven by 
austerity, lack of money, trying to minimize staff time taken up by automatable, in theory, kind of activities, hence facial recognition to take registers, hence fingerprints to deal with lunch queues, hence fingerprints to deal with books being taken out, and lots of other small tasks around the school. I feel like that has been a big driver of uptake of EdTech in the UK. In the US, it's been school shootings and the broader securitization of schools. So social media monitoring and other forms of comm surveillance are huge in America. You know, there are lots of different softwares which are designed to read all the conversations kids have amongst each other and flag particular words, which, as you can imagine, has led to, you know, (laughs) huge, huge problems with discrimination around which words get flagged, around increasingly broader concerns with the change in abortion regulation. If you're a kid and you don't necessarily have a safe platform to talk on, you don't really want your school to be flagging whether or not you're talking about abortion particularly if it's a legal issue and all sorts of other things. So that's kind of the driver in Pakistan. It was the pandemic pickup and a focus on edtech that supports education, hence the Zoom, but also the discrimination and the risk concerns. In India, there's a hardcore focus on tutoring and academics. Um, So there's a huge, though, kind of slightly slowing market for content-focused education, companies like Baiju and other things, and different areas of different histories and different legal regimes around edtech and around technologies so whether that's the gdpr in europe but then there are actual edtech laws guidance around open sourcing uh, particularly in latin america where open sourcing is more often i think written into law to say we want you to generally use open source technology in schools as compared to closed box technologies has that extended to open sourcing context i'm thinking of i think china introduced a, a rule that you can no longer have tutors to advantage kids in getting into schools. And I wonder if that's led to a burgeoning of the Chinese ed tech industry for content, where parents would instead sign their kids up. But then are there elite services versus open services? And how does that work out? Honestly, I don't know. Probably is the answer. But I don't know that much about the ed tech environment in China, except to say that China's data protection regimes are fairly interesting. Obviously, China and government access to data is one thing. But China said, please stop using facial recognition in schools to take attendance. They clamped down on that fairly early on. I think it was around the same time as the first DPA in Europe, which was Sweden, said the same thing, which is, what are you doing? So I think China put a moratorium on facial recognition in schools, which again was starting to be implemented. I think it was more of a government only should have this technology kind of thing. But... Nonetheless, you know, China is sometimes better than you'd think on data protection regulation when it comes to private companies. But it is interesting the different things that get taken up. Like in Nigeria, access to edtech is not huge, but three or four edtech unicorns have come out of Nigeria. The investment environment is pretty good, I guess, huge. And the Nigerian government are saying, well, this is a growth sector for the Nigerian economy. Like, great. Invest in edtech, brilliant. Which is, if you're the Nigerian government, like doesn't feel like an entirely unreasonable position. It's just that good edtech, please. Yeah. <laughs> like good rules and, you know, different places have different rules. Baiju, the Indian edtech company, have gotten quite a lot of trouble for their really, or they haven't gotten enough trouble for their really aggressive sales tactics and their really dubious financial arrangements. I feel like education and healthcare are those things that, as humans, we want for everybody, 
so long as ours is better. Mm. <laughs> and what, what I get for me and my loved ones is the best that can be. And I imagine there's a hell of a market for selling to parents. In the same way, going back to the Chinese example of tutors, I imagine there's a market for selling advantage to those who can afford. Oh, there are a hundred percent is. There's a huge market for it. And if you're somewhere where education is very competitive, then yes, there is a huge secondary market for ed tech and tutoring. And it's one of those things where technology makes people think something is better or shinier or fancier. Like, oh, they're using all these buzzwords that that must be so expensive and like, you know, so cool. And, you know, sometimes it's true, but mostly it's not. Again, like it's not inherently bad, but it's not inherently good. And it's really difficult to find kind of proper evaluations on whether it's good in the same way you know if i'm trying to evaluate which medication is best for me that i'm not the person to do that (laughs) my doctor should be doing that you know my input should be taken seriously because i'm the one taking them and it should be a partnership but there is so much information out there and so much of it is self-serving from companies you know the information that i understand and have access to is going to be a company testing its own product and saying it's great because it will be written in language aimed at me because that's the person they're trying to sell to. The scientists talk to scientists most of the time. <laughs> so, it, you know, and there are more and more CSOs testing ed tech. But again, there's a difference, I think, between testing what to me should be the baseline standard, you know, where does my data go? And again, like I can, I can do a dynamic analysis of an app and say, I opened it and my data started going here. Here are all the addresses it got sent to. But I can't say that company then sold it onto a third party because I don't know. I can say which companies it went to in the first step, but the next step is really hard. And, you know, lots of people have different solutions for that. I think it was Human Rights Watch who suggested child data flags so that people would always know that they were dealing with children's data. But I think it does come back to particularly in school environments, is this necessary? If it's necessary for education, then why are you giving me the opportunity to talk about, if it's not necessary, don't use it. Why are you asking for my consent? It's not a necessary part of education, but everyone wants the best for their kids. You're coming close to an evaluator frame that could very well disentangle the whole market, which is, is it necessary? No. Okay. Well, it does it cost money? No. Well, if it doesn't cost money, how's it making money? Oh, because it leaks data. Oh, so maybe we shouldn't be procuring from firms that leak data. Okay. So what firms can we use? Oh, there's no firms left. Oh, there are some firms over there, but they cost even more. Oh, well, maybe we can't afford this. Maybe it's not worth doing. And so then all of a sudden we're dealing with a much more realistic business model for ed tech. I feel like ed tech's gone crazy like so many other sectors because they've been fueled on excitement of the market, but also the data. Like if nothing else, it's at least generating bucket loads of data that can be sold or monetized in some way. Maybe that era is coming to an end if you could sort this out for us. 
Well, this is the other thing. So that it's not uncommon in edtech as in other forms of public-private partnerships for someone to be offered something for free to begin with. Like that's standard and it shouldn't be allowed, I don't think. If ultimately you're going to charge for it, you need to charge for it upfront. Isn't that how drugs work? <laughs> I yes, mean, the, the it not is how nice drugs way. work. <laughs> yes, it is. And it, broadly, it comes down to schools need to do a much better job and they need to be resourced to do a much better job or they need kind of a third state party to do this job for them of vetting the technology they use in schools. That is yeah. full stop, basically. You know, we have more specific opinions than that, particularly like around facial recognition in schools. Just don't. But it kind of comes down to that. And if you're interested in EdTech, if you're worried, please check out our website. By the time this goes up, we should have published some more information. Then pvcy.org forward slash EdTech, a link I will set up between now and then. And we will continue to be publishing work and information on this. But broadly, if you're a child and your school is asking you to technology, ask them why and ask them what it does and ask them where your data goes. If you're a parent and your child is being asked to use particular forms of technology, ask the same things. And if you're a school and you don't understand the implications, you don't have to use it. <laughs> you have obligations both legally, but also like ethically. You have a duty of care towards the children in your care and they have a human right to privacy. And just to have my own plug, to re-up our previous podcast on the issue, if you're a teacher and you want to cover some of these issues in the content of your classes, we have a previous podcast that discussed that. And we also have an online resource that we'll include the link to where you as a teacher can search through some educational content packages, not tools, but packages that you can use as you develop your curricula. Talking to people about privacy or privacy, depending on where you're from, is the podcast. But yeah, so thanks for listening. Uh, we'll have more information on the website and probably at some point we'll do another podcast because I cannot shut up about this problem. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Thank you very much, Caitlin. And I look forward to the next steps on this, not just as somebody who works with you, but as a parent. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can tell us what you think of the podcast by visiting us at pvcy.org slash tpsurvey. You can sign up to be the first to learn more about our work, including our work on edtech, by going to pvcy.org slash pod sign up. And we'll include some links to the relevant articles and information in the description wherever you're listening or on our website, which is pvcy.org slash techpill. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. Music courtesy of Sepia. This podcast was produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International. Nice. Sweet.